is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Political action groups spent nearly $29 million to promote candidates in the recent state Supreme Court race, according to Watchdog Group Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. The Democracy Campaign reported that outside sources, such as Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, spent $16.7 million to campaign for Daniel Kelly, while outside groups that include Planned Parenthood spent $11.6 million on behalf of Janet Protosiewicz. Protosiewicz won the hotly contested race April 4th. A day after CUNA Mutual Group met with union representatives in a joint mediation session, the union says the company is reluctant to schedule additional bargaining dates. The federal mediator urged the parties to meet outside of the two remaining mediation dates that are scheduled before Local 39 of the Office and Professional Employees would go on strike May 19th. But Chief Steward Joe Iveca says CUNA management has shown no interest in doing so. Local 39 has filed two additional unfair labor practice charges following the meeting Wednesday, accusing management of reneging on bargaining dates offered and failing to bargain with the employees' representatives. The union will host a strike-ready rally at 10 a.m. Saturday on the Capitol Square. An online petition seeking expulsion of a UW student who is seen on video uttering racial slurs has gained tens of thousands of signatures, the Daily Cardinal reports. Madison Alders Julia Bennett and MGR Govind Donjar joined State Representative Francesca Hung in condemning the video of the UW student in a joint letter earlier today. University officials have stated that the First Amendment would not allow them to expel the student. Hundreds of community members and students marched down University Avenue earlier today, protesting the university's response. Today's action followed a sit-in protest outside of University Chancellor Jennifer Manukin's office yesterday, where they issued a list of demands that included expulsion of the student in the video. A Madison lab that tests products on animals provided substandard care to several of its test monkeys, a federal report shows. Lab Corp Early Development Laboratories failed to treat an ailing macaque for several months until the animal had to be euthanized. A veterinarian from the U.S. Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service had reported. The report also stated that a lab technician reused a syringe and needle to inject several animals in violation of standard protocol that specifies that fresh syringes and needles need to be used when injecting the animals intravenously. LabCorp was previously fined $3,375 by the USDA for violations at the laboratory and the deaths of multiple animals, according to SAEN, a national watchdog group that monitors animal research laboratories. And now on to today's top stories. The Capitol thrummed with numerous legislative hearings today. Among them was a hearing for a bill that would provide additional funding for local governments, a change that was celebrated by many local officials testifying today. But with the cash would come more limitations for local governments, curtailing their authority and deciding what's on the ballot to mining operations. WRT reporter Faye Parks has the story. 
During today's hearing, local government leaders spoke in favor of the bill's additional financial support for counties, cities, and towns. Under the bill, local governments would begin receiving supplemental aid from the state beginning in 2024. It would also award so-called innovation grants to counties and municipalities to transfer local government services to private entities. And local leaders applauded the increased financial support for their local community, as many counties and municipalities across Wisconsin are hurting for cash. According to Mayor Steve Ponto of Brookfield, Unless municipalities obtain more resources, we will be unable to provide the same level and quality of local services we have in the past. Wisconsin should increase its investment in cities because if cities are not doing well, neither is the state. According to a report released last fall from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, the total debt owed by local governments rose to over $11 billion in 2020, the highest in state history. But the behemoth bill would also make a number of changes in how local governments can operate. It would prohibit counties or municipalities from placing advisory referendums on the ballot. Advisory referendums are non-binding, which means no law is changed if a referendum is supported by a majority of voters. They're usually used to gauge voter support for a variety of issues. Matt Rothschild of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign says it's an unconstitutional infringement on civil rights. This is just an outrageous uh, violation of our freedom to speak, assemble, and petition the government, uh, which are enshrined in the Wisconsin Constitution as well as the U.S. Constitution. You know, these guys, they not only, uh, you know, aren't listening to us, they don't even want us to be able to express ourselves. Recent Dane County referendum questions include support for legalizing marijuana and support for the repeal of Wisconsin's 1849 abortion law. In recent elections, the city of Madison has used advisory referendums to gauge the city's support for changes to the structure of the city council. The bill would require high schools to collect statistics on criminal and ordinance violations occurring on school property, and report them to the state's Department of Public Instruction. That's a change that's opposed by the Wisconsin Association of School Boards. The bill would prohibit public health departments from closing business to control an outbreak or epidemic longer than two weeks, with stringent renewal requirements. And it would require local approval on conservation projects funded by the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program, the state's massive and decades-long program for conserving land. The bill would also limit the ability of local governments to set rules or conditions on the operation of non-metallic quarries. It would prohibit local governments, in some cases, from requiring a permit from operators. In other cases, when local governments do have an ordinance on the books, it would carve out exceptions related to times that blasting or extraction can take place. But business owners and manufacturing representatives championed the mining proposals. Aaron Longminer, the executive director of the Aggregate Producers of Wisconsin told today's committee that it will ensure greater regulatory certainty and streamline the work of mining operators. Ensuring that more aggregate sites are available for use in transportation and construction projects will significantly reduce trucking costs, wear and tear on our roads, and carbon emissions. The bill was introduced yesterday and has already received a hearing. The list of lobbyists registered on the bill has grown throughout the day to two dozen. If approved by committee, it would move on to approval to the state assembly. A companion bill in the state Senate has not been introduced. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Governor Evers announced today he'd veto the bill, saying it failed to deliver adequate resources to communities. 
the lawsuit looking to overturn Wisconsin's 19th century near total abortion ban took its first major step today as a Dane County judge heard arguments as to whether or not the case should be dismissed. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. Attorneys gave their first round of oral arguments in the case looking to throw out Wisconsin's abortion ban in Dane County Court today, a case that will likely make its way all the way to the state Supreme Court. Today's arguments were only to decide whether or not the case should be dismissed. That case was brought forward by State Attorney General Josh Call last summer, arguing that Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban cannot be enforced. After first bringing the case against top state GOP lawmakers, Call later filed against the district attorneys in the three counties that provided abortion services, Dane, Milwaukee, and Sheboygan. The ban, originally written in 1849, criminalizes doctors providing abortions unless it's to save the life of the mother. While the ban has remained on the books in state law, it was unenforceable for nearly 50 years because of federal protections guaranteed under Roe v. Wade. Sheboygan County District Attorney Joel Ermanski, the only DA in the case who said he would prosecute abortion providers, called for the lawsuit to be dismissed. Whether or not to dismiss the case was the subject of today's oral arguments before Dane County Judge Diane Schlipper. First, Judge Schlipper heard arguments as to whether Josh Call, along with the state's Department of Professional Services and the state's Medical Examining Board, would actually be affected if the ban were to remain. Matthew Tome, Ermanski's attorney in the case, says that because Call, Northey Departments and Board would be directly affected, they have no standing to bring the case forward. The plaintiffs, the Attorney General, and other state officials and agencies have sued district attorneys, other state officers, over what amounts to a difference of opinion and the plaintiff's own desire to know what the law is. The plaintiffs are not subject to potential prosecution by the defendant district attorneys, nor are the district attorneys subject to potential prosecution by the plaintiffs. Medical providers have maintained that the current state law regulating abortions is unclear, leading to uncertainty and doubt about how to handle patient care in the last year. Hannah Jers is an assistant state attorney general representing the Wisconsin Medical Examining Board, which determines the conduct of all Wisconsin physicians. Jers argued that a court needs to clarify the law in order for the board to do its job. So if there is an allegation made to the board that there has been a violation of the law, then the medical examining board has a duty to investigate that violation. And so I think that's where it's important to note that this is not a duty just as to convictions for a violation of the state law. It's also for those alleged violations. The attorneys seeking to invalidate the ban argue that Wisconsin has passed other laws that regulate abortion, like a 1985 law that prohibits abortion after a medical professional finds that a fetus is viable to survive outside the womb, or around 23 weeks. Jurors says that a law that bans abortions and a law that allows some abortions can't coexist. Let's imagine Wisconsin has two hypothetical criminal laws. The first says it is illegal for pedestrians to cross the street unless the walk sign is illuminated. The second says it is illegal for pedestrians to cross the street under any circumstances unless necessary to save the life of another pedestrian. Those two laws cannot both be the law of Wisconsin at the same time. They can't be because one tells us 
circumstances when it is lawful for pedestrians to cross the street, i.e. when the walk sign is illuminated, and the other makes those same factual circumstances a crime. But that's the conflict that exists between these statutes if both applies to abortion. Also at issue in today's hearing was the potential for uneven enforcement of the ban around the state, with some DAs pledging not to prosecute abortions. Attorneys seeking to invalidate the ban argued that it's not acceptable to have different rules for doctors in different counties, depending on the stance of the county's prosecuting attorney. Attorneys argued that even if doctors knew which county DAs would prosecute abortion providers and which would not, the statute of limitations could still leave physicians open to felony charges down the line. Leslie Freehill is an attorney at Pinesbach Law Firm, which is representing a group of doctors who formerly performed abortions. Freehill says that the lines for doctors need to be clear and uniform across the state. And due process requires that um, people in the state of Wisconsin have fair notice of what is criminal and what is not so that they can conform their behavior accordingly. Um, And our argument is that um, to say that this 1849 law is in effect violates due process um, because they need to have fair notice of what the law is and what they can and cannot do. Judge Diane Schlipper will now have 90 days to come to a decision on whether or not the case should be dismissed. If it is allowed to continue, attorneys will next go before her to argue the merits of the case. The case is almost certain to make its way to the state Supreme Court, which will have a 4-3 liberal majority once Justice-elect Janet Protasiewicz is sworn in in August. Protasiewicz had repeatedly and vocally stated her support for abortion rights leading up to last month's election. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wickehout. Once oral arguments in the abortion lawsuit wrapped up earlier today, State Attorney General Josh Call spoke to reporters to give his immediate reaction to today's hearing. This is a recording of that full press conference. Uh, Great. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us. Um, I wanted to take this opportunity to provide a few comments uh, on today's argument in our challenge to Wisconsin's 1849 uh, criminal abortion ban and answer any questions you have. Um, First, I want to start off by thanking our team, which is doing excellent work on this case. Uh, thank you for all your hard work and uh, and the work that lies ahead of us as this case moves forward. Um, as you all know, we are deeply committed to working to restore access to safe and legal abortion in Wisconsin. Uh, we filed suit close to a year ago now, arguing that the 1849 ban is unenforceable in the state of Wisconsin. We've raised a few different legal arguments, uh, including that a prior state Supreme Court, uh, the Black uh, Supreme Court decision, the Black decision, uh, if The logic of that opinion indicates that uh, the the 1849 statute is not enforceable uh, in cases involving consensual abortion. Um, We've also argued that laws that were passed subsequent to Roe v. Wade fundamentally conflict with the 1849 ban. Both uh, individual laws conflict and that the category of laws that regulate lawful abortion in Wisconsin conflict with that statute. Um, Today's hearing was uh, an important step as this case moves forward, um, but the legal process will continue. The judge today indicated that she was taking the uh, the, the case under advisement, uh, so she will issue a decision ultimately on uh, on the motion to dismiss, and, and the case will move forward from there. Of course, there will likely be additional proceedings as we move forward, and we are confident about our arguments and look forward to continuing uh, to fight in court to restore access to safe and legal abortion in Wisconsin. 
Uh, so with that, happy to open it up to questions. So with no big announcement today, in your opinion, what is going to happen best case scenario? Well, we expect that the, you know, it's clear from the argument today that the judge is carefully considering the arguments that were raised. There was a lot of discussion about the legal arguments that have been raised. The judge in the case will issue an opinion on the motion to dismiss. Um, we, you know, we all want to move this case forward, and, and that was discussed at the argument today. Um, but I, I have no doubt that the judge is going to issue a carefully reasoned opinion, and then depending on what the judge's ruling is, we'll see what the next step in the case is. What do you think about the defense saying that yeah, I certainly uh, would would point to the what you heard from our, our attorney today, who was at, arguing in the case. Um, but we've laid out reasons that we believe that the laws passed subsequent to Roe v. Wade are fundamentally in conflict with the 1849 ban, uh, even if the 1849 ban is found to apply to cases involving consensual abortion. Um, we're confident about those arguments, uh, and you know, ultimately, we'll see what the judge rules. You speak about the line of questioning about whether um, statutes are uh, related to femicide versus abortion. Yeah, there's a case that the state Supreme Court decided, the Black case, uh, where they held that one of the subsections of the relevant law uh, applies to feticide cases. We've argued that that same logic should apply to the statute here. Uh, that was one of the topics that was discussed in the argument today. We feel strongly about our arguments, but again, the, the court will ultimately rule on that. Why doesn't that ruling, which does say it conflicts with 940.15, why doesn't that ruling give you enough confidence to say abortion is legal and providers can provide abortions? Well, that's exactly what, what we argued today. Uh, we argued that that statute should be applied, but um, one of the things that was, uh, one of the points that was made today and I think came across clearly is that there's a lot of uncertainty about what the state of the law is given that there's this conflict. That's exactly why we are in court, not only to restore access to safe and legal abortion, but also to ensure that there's clarity for doctors and for patients around the state as people try to access needed medical care. What's your biggest worry if, if the 1849 abortion ban were to remain in place as is? Well, first, I'm, I'm confident that we, we will win this challenge, um, but I've heard from uh, doctors in particular about the challenge that the current state of the law is imposing. I've heard from them about things like not knowing what care they can provide for their patients, uh, about having patients who are concerned about what's going to happen if they have a medical emergency. I've heard about OBGYN students who don't want to practice in the state of Wisconsin at a time when we already have a shortage of OBGYNs. Um, we need to restore access to safe and legal abortion in Wisconsin to protect the safety and the health of women in Wisconsin, but also to make sure that our medical professionals are able to act when they need to to protect uh, the health and the safety of women in the state. Is there a gray area with abortion pills, do you think? There are, there's a different state law that applies to situations involving medication abortion. That was one of the topics that, that was discussed today, but it's, it's one of the examples of the point that uh, we've made in our briefing and, and that was made at argument today, which is that Wisconsin has comprehensively regulated lawful abortion. There are a series of statutes, including statutes relating to medication abortion, those, those statutes and that comprehensive regulation is fundamentally in conflict with the notion of this broad ban uh, that, that D.A. Ermansky was advocating for being in effect uh, today. Are you concerned at all that the Supreme Court could step in and try to take the case prior to the changeover on August 1st and resolve the case before we have any justice? Well, first, I, I think we will see what happens with uh, the motion to dismiss that's pending. The judge has said that she's going to take it under advisement and, and issue a ruling at some point. Depending on when she rules and what her ruling is, that could impact uh, 
what the next step is in the case. Um, you know, the unfortunate reality, and I've said this since we filed the case, is that the legal process takes a while to play out. Uh, you know, we filed this case almost a year ago now, and, and there are still going to be several steps in this case as it moves forward. Um, it, it, it certainly could end up in front of the state Supreme Court and will likely be uh, appealed no matter what the result is. But how that all plays out will depend on a variety of factors. And what we're going to keep doing is making the strongest legal arguments we can and continuing to fight to restore access to safe and legal abortion. How that plays out procedurally or, or when uh, remains to be determined. What does today mean for abortion rights in the state of Wisconsin? Well, this is a significant step forward in the legal process. Uh, as I mentioned, we filed this case almost a year ago. Briefs have been filed. Um, this is an indication that we are you know, moving towards a decision on the motion to dismiss. Um, but it's just one step in the process. There will be other steps along the way. And you know, uh, ultimately, we, I'm confident we will get a, a final decision through this case. But um, what this means is that that process is moving forward and we're a step closer now to resolution and clarity in the state of Wisconsin. If this motion is dismissed, do you plan to bring forth a new strategy to the state Supreme Court or bring up the same arguments? We're going to wait to see what the judge's ruling is in this case. Uh, you know, it, we will analyze that ruling when it comes out and make a decision at that point uh, about what, what next steps to take. Uh, again, I'm confident that we have strong legal arguments and that this case will continue to move forward, but uh, what that next step in this case will be uh, will depend on what the, the substance of the ruling is. That was State Attorney General Josh Call speaking before reporters, speaking with, speaking before reporters after attorneys gave oral arguments in the state's abortion lawsuit earlier today. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host A.C. Harbaugh. Thank you for joining us. On this week's archival edition of Out of the Box, host D-Star sat down with Renee Moe, CEO of the United Way of Dane County, to share both the history and the future of the organization. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with Renee Moe. For the people that don't know you can you give us a little bit about yourself sure well uh, i'm here because i'm the president and ceo of united way of dane county and a big d star fan um <laughs> i'm a madison resident and uh, i really love serving our community so where did you grow up i'm a military kid i grew up all over the place my dad was in the air force and met my mom in taiwan born in tampa florida on mcdill air force base and we lived in Germany for a few years and Okinawa, Japan for a few years. And when my dad retired, we moved to a little town called Northfield, Wisconsin, mm. about two and a half hours north of I-94. Wow. So I remember one time you were telling me that you were in radio before. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and give us a, a tagline <laughs> one, one time for the one time. Oh, United Way of Dane County, the power of many working for all. How's that? <laughs> that <was good. laughs> So tell us a little bit about the United Way and what role does it play in the community? Yeah, so United Way has uh, an organization that is 100 years old this year, and we really think of ourselves as a change catalyst. Our job is to mobilize the caring power of the community to create change that lasts for generations. We really anchor around education, financial stability that allows for housing, as well as health, 
And we work to coordinate nonprofits in a holistic, two-gen, multi-generational approach so families get what they need. We're also known for civic engagement. We really empower folks to learn more about the needs in our community. And if they want to make a difference, to give, advocate, or volunteer to make those changes because we know it takes every person to make our community even better. So 100 years. Wow, that's very impressive. So what are some of the milestones over the 100 years, like some of the programs that the United Way has implemented or they have championed? Well, when you think about the founding of United Way in about 1922, it really was a way to coordinate philanthropic efforts. So there were a lot of business members who were uh, of the community who were asked to give money and they wanted it to be done in a way that was more efficient for fundraising and more effective for where the dollars went in the community. So that's really where our foundational start began. If you fast forward, United Way's then called community chests, like on your Monopoly board, were very instrumental to helping in the war efforts. So when men were off in World War II, a lot of labor unions, United Way, women and children, you know, really there was a lot of of, uh, support with faith and nonprofits. How do you work together to help make sure families have what they need? That started a little bit more of the focus, not only on how people can give money, but what to do with it. I would say in the uh, 70s and 80s, payroll deduction became a much bigger deal. So people could, in their workplaces, give a little bit in every paycheck, and uh, that allowed for more dollars to go to community nonprofits that happened all across the country. Here in Dane County, in the late 90s, this is where things to me start getting really even more inspiring than those fire decades, because it was about that time where when we were talking about academic opportunity gaps, really seeing that our black and brown students weren't reading at proficiency, especially comparatively to our white students. That's when the community really mobilized around some big community goals. How do we help more students be successful in literacy? And about that time, we started focusing less on the campaign goal as our success measure and really focused more in on community change as a success measure. So Schools of Hope was really the start to all of that. We set a community goal, mobilized folks, actually focused in on reading scores. And we saw 29% of kids not reading at proficiency at the beginning, down to under 4% not reading at proficiency. Super powerful. And that really started the whole impact agenda and collective impact movement across the country, really, that really credited with starting at United Way of Dean County and my predecessor, Leslie Howard. So that was Schools of Hope. Um, And then the agenda for change really anchored around a number of community goals. Much like we had said, how do we focus on literacy? We started focusing in on early childhood readiness, in addition to education and graduation rates, homelessness reduction, violence reduction, more long-term support for people with disabilities and those who are older, and healthcare access for more people. So it was a really robust, wide agenda. And we were able to then, through that, over the next uh, decade or so, start seeing some really powerful signature initiatives. So I'll save the journey home for the one we'll talk about in a little bit. But we were able to work in partnership with the city, the county, nonprofits to help, for example, really transform the homelessness support system across Dane County. Previously, it had been all about helping people get shelter or help. We really wanted to get people out of homelessness. So Housing First was a program that was born out of that. In our income space, we worked with uh, not only nonprofits, but also employers as well as other individuals who were under or unemployed to really, again, transform that employment system to be able to help match different industries who needed workers with individuals who are looking for work and helping the nonprofits create a no-wrong-door system for employment. Again, really uh, exceptional results there, getting to family-sustaining wages. And in the health area, we've been able to partner with some of our healthcare system partners like UW Health or Quartz and really help to provide um, healthcare access through the Health Connect program. And that gets um, people's premiums paid 
if which they was are. revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sandy was telling me about oh. that and she was saying how, how you guys implemented that and it just helps so many people. Mm-hmm. So thank you guys for that. Oh my goodness. We do it together and that's the power of the community. So, you know, we really are, when you use the word transformational, each one of these is a really powerful collaboration in the community. And what United Way really does is takes the individual efforts of one agency or one organization or one person. We try to amplify that to make more solutions across the community. So we're accountable for our results and we make sure that we listen to the people who are most directly affected by the decisions that are being made, as well as actually driving toward that change that gets to not only helping, but hopefully to well-being and self-sufficiency overall. So what are some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome being a woman CEO? I think uh, a lot of times people don't look at you and take you seriously as a CEO. <laughs> that probably sounds a little funny. Really? You think so? Sometimes I do. And, uh, you know, not not now, right? I think now um, people know our work. They know our results. I will say, though, when I was applying for the position, um, you know, first of all, I had my own self-doubts, right? Why do you want to be a CEO And when I had the aha that the reason you do a job like this is because you get access to resources to actually make change, that's when it felt much more comfortable inside of me. So that was the first obstacle. Um, The second one is people would say, well, you don't look like a CEO. I don't know if you've got that CEO capability. Like, well, what does that mean exactly? You're super uh, nice. (laughs) Maybe. I always say nice and effective are not mutually exclusive. It probably is true, right? People don't think that a collaborative style, they may not think that has the most uh, effectiveness. But actually, to me, it's one of the most effective ways to make change. And uh, it's not about who gets the credit. It's about getting things done. And sometimes I think if you're not up, you know, really saying, hey, here's the stuff. Go do it this way. People don't necessarily think you're effective. That doesn't mean you're not you know, paying attention to the whole community and trying to put the pieces in the right places to actually get more done together. It's more my style. And I think that co-creation and listening is so powerful. You know, one of the things I love to say is the community always tells you what it needs if you listen. And that means a staff community. It means the larger communities that we support. And I think that sometimes people don't think, like I said, that style is necessarily effective or they feel like you're abdicating your responsibility as a leader. That definitely comes through sometimes. But again, I really believe in my heart and soul It is the most effective way to make change because then people feel like they can see the solution. They were a part of it. And the commitment is there to continue the work beyond just making the decision, but actually making sure you carry through the action to result. That was D Starr, host of the Out of the Box podcast and his conversation with United Way of Dane County CEO, Renee Moe. You can hear their full conversation wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The House Always Wins, host John Stephanie and Ali Barini walk us through how and when it's time to replace your old drafty windows. I call it housework, cause it's light work. What you, what you got here? I'ma throw sheets, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework. Hello, I'm John. And I'm Allie, and welcome to The House Always Wins, a place where you can learn cool stuff about your house. Cool stuff, we love cool stuff. Hey, Allie, you know, I was driving the other day and you ever seen those billboards or hear the radio ads for replacement windows? Those deals can seem really, really phenomenal, right? A house full of windows for 2000 new windows, 400 a piece installed, save 20% on your energy bills. Wow. They're often very used car salesman kind of looking and uh, they seem like they're too, a little too good to be true. What's going on over there with those ads? <laughs> 
Yeah, those ads are pretty slick, and and uh, they're even uh, door to door salespeople who sell those windows. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. But what it, let's let's talk about uh, what you're getting because those are what they're selling are are what are called replacement windows, and what they're what they're replacing is um, if you have an older home, you very often have what are called double hung windows. Uh, the sashes, the part that holds the glass, moves up and down. There's probably a, a rope on the side, or at least there used to be. Used to be. Rope on the side. Um, and that rope would would have been attached to a counterweight that's in a, a pocket right next to the window. You, you wouldn't see the counterweight when it's uh, when it's all put together. Um, and the the problems you tend to see with with those old double hung windows in homes is is first is that the the rope is broken or it's missing, and so you might be able to open the window, but it's not going to stay open unless you prop it open. Oh yeah, I remember as a kid, you like you open it up and slam, it falls back down again. And if your fingers were in there, ouch. Mm-hmm. Classic now, guillotine. Remember that was one of the great things you could do with like twelve inch rulers. <laughs> Remember that you'd, you'd hold up. Your, I don't know if that people do that anymore. Uh, I have a window that has a sculpture of a cow that holds it up. Oh, nice! That's that's much better than a twelve-inch ruler for sure. But you you do understand. You have to understand that those windows uh, will always be drafty. Right. Uh, you can add some weather stripping, but you're you're just not going to make them into um, a window that's anywhere performing like a modern window. That's it's not a possibility. True. The other thing to to bear in mind is that a lot of these older windows. Um, have have lead finishes on them, either inside, outside, or, or often both. Yeah, and that's that's a, that's a big deal, and especially if you have kids in a house. But even if you don't, yeah, lead is just not something to trifle with. And every time you open and close those, it kicks just that teeny tiny bit of lead up into the air. It's 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 a danger. So there are some some good solid reasons to get your windows replaced. But keep in mind that if your windows don't have any of these sort of issues going on, sometimes you could just look at getting a good quality storm installed and it'll do everything you need and you'll get good energy savings. And so you don't always have to replace your windows, but there are definitely good reasons to do so. Like we said. Yeah. So what are you getting when, when you purchase a, a typical replacement unit? Well, um, most of these places, like some of these companies, they're going to be selling you, it's a vinyl window and let's be clear. Vinyl is vinyl and it's plastic. It's a plastic window. Um, it'll maybe have good glass in it. Yay. But plastic windows regardless. And plastic is not a happy material when it comes to great temperature changes. It expands and contracts at a much greater rate. They look like plastic, they look like vinyl, they feel like it, but you'll also get dual pane glass. And that's where the rubber really meets the road is a good uh, insulating glass is an important thing. And that that's one of the most important parts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, one thing to mention about vinyl windows is because they are so uh, subject to expanding and contracting with t- mm-hmm. changes in temperature, you get a pretty limited array of colors to choose from. Oh, right. You'll often, you won't see brown or dark blue or, or magenta or mauve. Oh, God. I hope you don't see that in anything. That was true. Um, Good point. One of the selling points, though, uh, to be fair to these windows, is that when they're installed, there's almost no destruction either to the exterior or the interior of the house. So if I can just kind of lay out the process a little bit, uh, the installer will come in with the replacement window. They're going to remove from the inside of the window this uh, small piece of trim called the window stop, and that's going to free up the window sashes that are in the old 
old window there. So those sashes will will come out, and those are those are off to the uh, off to the dumpster. Now a a great installer will will take out the weight pockets that or take out the counterweights that are in those pockets that are right next to the sashes. Hopefully, Hopefully. they put some insulation in there. The next thing that's going to happen is that whole replacement unit. It's a it's a two sashes surrounded by a frame that they fit into. That whole thing is going to pop into the opening. And then uh, a conscientious installer is going to make sure it's it's cocked and sealed into place. Um, and then finally, they'll uh, replace that piece of wooden stop that they took out in the first step. And it's on to the next window. And now you're going to have a functioning window where before you had a non-functioning window. Maybe, a guillotine. Yeah, a, a guillotine uh, covered in lead. <laughs> yeah, lead-covered guillotine. That sounds like a good time. So they definitely have some pluses, but what are some of the, the drawbacks of these units? Well, and as we mentioned a little earlier, the first thing is it's vinyl. It's plastic. It looks like it. Um, they're typically going to be white. You might see a couple of the colors, like maybe a brown, maybe beige. a beige. Mm-hmm. You'll see a beige, a mother-in-law beige. You'll 50 see shades a of beige, probably. <laughs> For sure. But uh, they're going to be real limited on the amount of colors, and you can't paint them. So it's not like you can install them and just paint them whatever you want, because vinyl doesn't accept paint well at all. Um, also, the amount of glass is going to be smaller, because everything is going to have to fit inside where the old one was, all the sash parts and everything. So you'll probably have a little bit less glass. Those are like the main drawbacks. And I, and the other the other drawback is that they're, these are often sold um, with the promise of a, a huge savings on your on your energy bills. Mm-hmm. And that's just not going to bear out in real life. All right, so you're never going to see you're never going to see the the that 20% savings on your energy bill. That's that's a complete fantasy. These windows are not going to be that kind of airtight to to provide that kind of energy savings. Um, and over time, the seals within the window unit itself are going to start to uh, loosen up because vinyl is so um, prone to expansion and contraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think people think their entire energy bill is going to be 20% less, and they're always shocked when it's not. And yeah. it's, they're only saving 20% in just that small amount of area where the window is. Yeah, maybe. And I, I don't even know if I believe that that happens. Yeah, probably um, not. So, you know, when people ask me, you know, oh, the, should I replace my windows? The primary reason I think to do it is because your windows aren't functional. That's mm-hmm. a good reason to replace windows. But yeah, honestly, they don't have to be vinyl windows. There are other options out there. Right. You can get uh, fiberglass windows. You can actually re- get wood windows in certain situations. That's more rare. But uh, yeah, there's other options besides vinyl for sure. Yeah. And, and if you're ready to, to, to start replacing your windows, I recommend you, you talk to a reputable home remodeler. Right. Uh, finding, finding a reputable contractor is the way to go. And actually that in and of itself, finding a, con- a reputable contractor seems like another topic for a future segment. Um, so with that, I think we'll, we'll have to wrap it up here. And uh, just remember all y'all, if you have a question about carpentry or home improvement, uh, send us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. And thanks for joining us. See you next time. See you next time. But I'm gonna throw shade if I don't get paid for this housework. I call it housework. Cause it's like work. When Percy Shelley wrote, If winter comes, can spring be far behind? 
I'm sure he wasn't talking about winters in Wisconsin, because if he was, the answer would be simple. Yes. I mean, spring could be upended by 80 degrees or a snowstorm. But if you ask contributor Jennifer Fields, the only thing that could possibly keep winter at bay is a maypole. I don't know about you, but after suffering these past few spring days, I think we need a huge party. We need to come together as a community and celebrate surviving snow, sleet, hail, and rain, sometimes occurring all in the same day. We need to build a giant maypole in the middle of the city, grab some ribbon, and dance our collective little hearts out. The ideal of celebrating seasonal transitions is not new. Pagans in Northern Europe danced around the Maypole centuries ago. Many people, especially those in cold climates, still have rituals that involve celebrating the return of spring. What is it about that pole that's kept human beings dancing for so long? Professor Anne Smart Martin teaches art history and material culture studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're standing in the student union, surrounded by young people dressed in various shades of black. She says understanding how rituals and traditions spread cross-culturally can be difficult. Well, I think there are a couple of ways you could, you could sort that out. One would be um, think about the artifact and the object, because the object sort of grounds it, literally, um, in that something has to be about that, that pole. So it's a pole. It's a, it's a tall, skinny thing to the sky. And that in itself suggests it's about the heaven, it's about nature, it's about sort of connecting to the earth. Um, so already you're sort of thinking, okay, well, what is it about that? Is it a tree? Is it some kind of symbolic tree like uh, some of the Scandinavian or German cultures thought of it as? Was it something to do with the male body? But let's think about the ribbons from it. We've got long, we've got a big pole, and then we've got people wrapping around ribbons. Well... Ribbons is something I think is is really kind of another one of those great objects because they have all these meanings. And think about it, they're just little selvages of just little strips of, of um, fabric, textile. But they can be used in so many ways. Wrapping the maypole was a big one. Um, um, flapping off a tambourine. All these other ways in which ribbons can move and dance in the wind and other ways sort of... Um, moving through time and place and decorating the body. Um, so they have all this power in their own way. Terry Boyd is a professor of design studies at UW-Madison. She says it's important to remember that the ribbons decorating the maypole didn't come from the local five and dime. She says the poles were decorated with what the community had at hand. The ancientness of this tradition, that it is the organic world that's around you that you decorate with because you don't have a lot of other options. Um, you could paint it, I suppose. Um, but I don't think of the details on the pole as being symbolic, but rather it is the pole itself that is a magnet, is a, is a gathering, is a center for gathering, and that it is that gathering that is the essence of the maple phenomena. But where the earlier celebrants lived in small close-knit communities, 
the tradition lives on in today's urban environments, even though it doesn't involve an actual maypole. Professor Boyd says that rituals themselves are important to a community. They're the way we identify ourselves. Even though we don't celebrate the maypole on a national level, we have other rituals that reinforce a certain level of togetherness. To me, the parallel would be the neighborhood block party that, you know, we just kind of gather together, we kind of know the people who are, uh, we may or we not, may not know them closely, but they are our immediate community. But there is not an object that centers that. We are much more fragmented in the way we choose our communities that are not just sort of geographically based. We participate in communities virtually, that in some of those communities online are as strong as as the the tight uh, community of the maple, that you might say, I'm much closer to someone that I talk with online all the time than I am to my neighbor next door, that the sense of community is there, but it, we are, we're uh, creating those communities very differently now. I've been to block parties where the object we all gathered around was a beer keg. Adults were dancing around a large metal vessel carrying brightly colored cups. The event, called Senior Seensters, is a gathering of Madison punks from the 80s. I just returned to Madison after living in Chicago for a long time. When I got to the park, it was like I'd never left. We've been Facebook friends for years. It might seem different, but I think the early pagans would approve. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, John Stephanie and Ali Barini, and Jennifer Fields. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. And Miss Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. We love it when you tune in live on your radio or listen through the WORT app on your phone. But you can also never miss a local news episode when you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.